0: Well, guys, how many of y'all are here for the very first time this morning? Let me see some hands. Nice. Very nice. Welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us. I hope that you are all doing well. Wait, wait, wait. One one more question. One more question. How many of y'all are here for the last time this morning? Aww. Well, good morning. Uh, If it's your first time joining us, go ahead and open to the book of Matthew. That is where we are doing our study right now. Uh, We are actually coming, you know, kind of close to the end of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 25. And just to catch up, anyone who is new here this morning, as you turn to Matthew 25, let me give you a brief overview of where we are. We have just come to the end of Jesus' public ministry in the world uh, while he was here on earth as a physical human. Back in Matthew 21, we begun Matthew's account of the Passion Week, and that is the seven days leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And we begin this time period in Matthew 21 with Jesus riding triumphantly as a king into Jerusalem. And there, as he comes in Jerusalem, we get this amazing picture as everyone, the disciples, the crowds coming for the Passover, praise him, shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus comes into the temple, he drives out the temple changers, or the money changers, uh, and he begins to have these confrontations with the religious leaders. And we see that at every level, the so-called religious leaders of Israel reject him. The priests reject him, the scribes reject him, and even the the supreme council, what we call the Sanhedrin, they come and they confront him, and they reject him. And having finished these confrontations in Matthew 22 we see that Jesus begins to rebuke these leaders in Matthew 23 for their hard-hearted unbelief. For even while they clung to their self-made righteousness, the form of righteousness, they denied the one who actually had the power to make people righteous. And Jesus, or Jesus rebukes each one of them one at a time, saying, woe to you, woe to you. And after that, he withdraws from the public. That's it. This confrontation, these woes, that's the end of Jesus' public ministry on earth. And he begins just a time of private teaching of his disciples leading up to his death and resurrection. And that's where we are right now. They've left the temple out of Jerusalem, about a mile's journey at the most, going up the Mount of Olives. And the disciples, they got this question burning in their mind. Who remembers who was here, obviously? I mean, mean, hey, if you're a sixth grader coming in and you just know this passage— more power to you! But who remembers the question that the disciples asked Jesus? It's in Matthew twenty-four, verse three. Yes, nope, not that one. Not that one. That was that was a hilarious one. They asked him, "Yes, when, are, when is the end of the world coming?" When is the end of the world coming? Specifically, they want to know, "Hey, when is the end of this current age coming, and when is your messianic kingdom going to begin?" And they had this belief that the messianic kingdom. The kingdom of the Messiah was going to begin, like, right away. It was it. And, and you know, we kind of... <laughs> those wacky disciples. But, I mean, they actually had some good reason for having this thought process. Uh, you may remember, back in Matthew 16, 28, uh, Jesus had told the disciples that there would be some people, some of the disciples present with him right now, who would not die until they saw the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And then they see Jesus riding in Jerusalem And receiving all this praise, the praise that is rightfully his, and he's rebuking these religious leaders, and they're going, yeah, this has got to be it. of course, the truth of the matter is also in Matthew 16, when he said, hey, there's going to be some of you who see the Son of Man coming in his glory, he first started to tell them that he was going to Jerusalem specifically to suffer at the hands of the Pharisees to die on the cross and be raised again. But unfortunately, the disciples glossed over that point. And so Jesus uses this question to them, saying, when is your kingdom coming? And instead of rebuking them for not paying attention, he instead lovingly corrects their misunderstanding and saying, yes, my kingdom is absolutely coming. But there are things that have to take place first. And the things that have to take place first, this is a period of time that we call the tribulation period that Jesus describes. He doesn't lay it out for them in in extreme detail here. He gives them a brief overview. But we do know that this is a seven-year time period. It begins with the rapture of the Christians. Everyone who is in Christ at that time, God calls us to his side just like he did Enoch in a wonderful moment. We're here one moment, next moment we're gone. For everyone who remains, it is a time where God begins to Pour out His wrath on mankind, and we see that they're warned. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be a time of persecution for the Christians. That's not part of God's wrath being poured out on mankind. That's just something that's going to happen. And there's going to be an undoing of creation as man continues to reject God. And not only do they reject God, they begin to praise anti-God, the Antichrist. They raise up a man for themselves, a man who has the power of Satan, and they said, this will be our God, and they worship him. And while our understanding of the end times, like all of Scripture, is extremely important, finishing this overview of saying, comes, Jesus now transitions. He steps back and says, yes, all this is going to happen, but right now, regardless of whether you live until that future time when I come, or you pass away first, there are some very important things that you need to be doing right now. Specifically, God calls us that we all need to equally be on the alert. So starting in Matthew 24, 32, this is kind of where we are right now, but starting in Matthew 24, 32, and moving through 25, 30, Jesus steps back and says, here are some Things I want you to learn. He uses five different parables to tell us that in the light of the knowledge that He's given us about the tribulation to come, we are all to be on the alert right now in several different ways as we wait for that promised coming kingdom. And we see in the first parable, that's the parable of the fig tree, Jesus tells us to be on the alert for the signs of His coming. He says, just like the fig tree, when it starts to put out its leaves, you know that spring is coming. So, too, when you see these signs, you are to know that my kingdom is coming. In the parable of the thief in the night, you were told to be on the alert for the suddenness of Jesus' coming. That you don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen like a thief in the night. You're going to be completely caught off guard by it. In the parable of the wicked slave, we're told to be on the alert for the shortness of life. That you don't know how long you're going to be. There's a lot of people that go, you know what? I'm going to enjoy sin for now it's a lot of fun sitting right now. And you know, when I'm old and I'm done having my fun, then I'll settle down and I'll get serious. And that's when I'll commit myself to God. And God says, no, you don't know how long I've given you. And two weeks from now, after the summer camp, we're going to look at the fifth parable where Christ instructs us to be on the alert for how we're responding to his gospel message. But right now this morning, we're going to look at the fourth parable Jesus gives, and that's the parable of the ten virgins, where he instructs us that in light of our knowledge of his coming kingdom, we are to be on the alert for the validity of our faith. So let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. This is Matthew 25, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. "'For when the foolish took their lamps, "'they took no oil with them. "'But the prudent took oil and flasks "'along with their lamps. "'Now while the bridegroom was delaying, "'they all got drowsy and began to sleep. "'But at midnight there was a shout, "'Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him!' "'Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. "'The foolish said to the prudent, "'Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. "'But the prudent answered, No.' There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour." If you'll give me just a second here, I'm, I'm actually going to record on my phone because I, I think this is going out on every other word here. All right, so the title for this morning's lesson is, Who Have You Placed Your Faith In? And the theme is, No Seriously, Be On The Alert. And we're going to be looking at this parable in three sections. First, we're going to see that Jesus sets the stage for us for the parable this morning. Second, we're going to see that there's an unexpected delay, and that's going to be in verses 5 through 9. And finally, we'll see that there's a disastrous consequence for the foolish virgins in verses 10 through 12. And then Jesus gives a single application for us in verse 13. So let's look at this first section where Jesus sets the stage for this parable. You may recall that when Jesus gives a parable, he's using something mundane, which means something commonplace, something everyday we see in the world around us. And he's taking that mundane or commonplace thing, and he's using it to describe a greater spiritual truth about him or his kingdom. And for this parable, Jesus uses the common, everyday example of a wedding procession. Now, has anyone here been a part of a wedding? you here. Well, what did you get to do with it? Who, who doesn't mind telling me what they did in the wedding? What did you get to do, Abby? You were a flower girl? Ring bearer. Ring bearer, very good. Anyone else in here? Anything special? Yeah. Bridesmaid. Bridesmaid, awesome. Yeah, Riley? Also a fr- flower girl. Now, I, I too was part of a wedding once. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, my bride. My bride was over there, and, and I got to be a groom in a wedding which was a wonderful experience. Uh, Weddings, I love weddings. They are wonderful times, and and I love being part of the wedding party even. Like, it's it's great to be a groom, but even if I'm just a groom's man, it's a really fun thing, because part of the modern experience of weddings is we tend to do something called a rehearsal. That's either the day or the day before, and that's where we come together, and everyone does kind of a dry run, where are you going to stand? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, I will? Or are you going to say, I do? Uh, personally, I preferred I do, but uh, it's more grammatically correct to say I will, and so that's what we went with. Uh, and then afterwards, after, after this rehearsal, dinner, rehearsal, there tends to be a rehearsal dinner, and that's where we get to come together, and we get to have a meal as a family and as a close friends and celebrate the wedding to come. Well, in Jesus' time, instead of having a single day where they had this rehearsal and rehearsal dinner, they had a week. They knew how to have a party. And they would have this whole week where there's feasting and festivities. And at the end of this time, this took place at the, at the bride's house. And at the end of this time, the groom would come with his friends to the bride's house, and they'd have one more feast, a time of celebration. And then after nightfall, they would have this processional where everyone walked back to the groom's house for more feasting and festivities. So Jesus uses this well-known practice of the groom's marriage processional and uses it to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now as we set the stage for this parable, let's make sure we understand who the different characters in the parable are supposed to represent. Jesus introduces three groups of people in this parable. Who can tell me one of the groups that we, we see here? One of them is pretty obvious. One of them is just a person. I say group, group or people. What's one of them? The bridegroom. Absolutely. That is one. One of the groups or people. What's one of the other ones? The ten virgins. Get more specific for me. The um, prudent ones and the foolish ones. There we go. That's that are our three groups. We got the bridegroom. We have the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. And understand when it's talking about virgins, we're talking about what we call our bridesmaids. And, and today, so these these would be friends of the bride, close friends, and uh, equivalently, we call them bridesmaids. Now, the bridegroom obviously is—we're talking about Jesus. Uh, we see God use this kind of language elsewhere in the Bible, uh, such as Ephesians 5:27, where Paul writes that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. And this is this is the reference of a groom coming for her, his bride. So he presents her in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. But aside from that kind of of language and imagery existing elsewhere in the Bible, at the end of this passage, we see that Jesus specifically uses language of how he describes the five foolish virgins and the response used by the bridegroom saying, depart from me, I never knew you, mirrors what Jesus says that he will say to those who claim to know him but never obeyed him, back in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And making it clear that, you know, even apart from this other imagery, Christ is clearly the bridegroom. Now, as for the, the five wise and foolish virgins, again, these are just uh, bridesmaids. And a lot of commentators, they try to do weird things with parables sometimes. So, eh, look, this, is, this is a trap we all kind of fall into. Like let's let's not be too proud of ourselves. Um, it, it's easy to look at a parable and really stretch that parable to the breaking point. Uh, the 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 point of a parable is not for us to get always way down and be like, "Oh, well, the fact that there's five of them, this must mean this, and the fact that there's there's ten must mean that." Guys, <laughs> let, let's not miss the forest for the trees. I I love that saying. You guys know that. Um, these are these are not supposed to be. Like some representation of Israel. This isn't supposed to be some representation of of people who are all believers and five of them just lose their salvation. No. Uh, The point is that these are two different groups of people who, through their actions, demonstrate their commitment to Christ and his kingdom. Everyone sitting here this morning understand that we are the ten bridesmaids used in this parable. Remember, Jesus is giving these parables as a warning that we need to be on the alert for something. And four different times in this Olivet Discourse, that's what we're in the middle of right now, Jesus, after finishing his teachings on what the end times are going to be, uses this kind of transition language. He says, now, because of what I just told you, understand this. Therefore, because of what I just told you, understand this. Jesus is making these statements designed to grab your attention and get you to combine the truths of the tribulation period with a practical application for right now. And as he's doing this, he's calling out specific different people and how they are responding to the upcoming kingdom of Christ. Last week, Alejandro went over a passage where the people had no regard whatsoever for Christ. Uh, they, They weren't just not looking for his kingdom. They were in active rebellion against God, as they were a wicked servant doing wicked things because they were confident there would be no consequence for their sin. Conversely, this week, we are looking at people who are actively waiting for the return of the bridegroom. Notice how verse 1 describes them. They're not just some random person on the street. These are specifically the, the bridesmaids going out to meet him. However, our passage says that ten of the women uh, the, out of the ten of the women, five were wise and five were foolish. What was the defining characteristic that made them wise or foolish? Who, who can look in verses three and four and tell me? Yeah. Um, five of them fought ahead and brought an extra thing of oil in case their oil went out and the other five didn't. That's right. Uh, verses three and four tells us that the difference is whether or not they brought the oil with them. And what the oil represents, that's another one of these things that people really like to stretch this parable on. They try to say, well, the oil is good deeds, and you've got to fill up your flask with good deeds, or else you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Or they say, well, the oil represents uh, the Holy Spirit, and you've you got to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can get into the kingdom of heaven. And yes, both those things are true as Christians, but this passage isn't talking about doing good deeds, and it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. If you want a great passage for how a Christian needs to be doing whole, uh, good deeds, uh, go to James, James 119. Excellent passage about how, if you're a true believer, it should prompt you out of love to respond with doing good deeds that Christ prepared for you to do beforehand. Uh, if you want a, a passage that talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, go to Ephesians 5.18. Great passage about being filled with the Holy Spirit. These are both things that we should do and, and should have as Christians, but it's not what this parable is about. Uh, This passage is focusing only on the preparedness for welcoming the kingdom of God. And if the oil was supposed to represent good deeds or our salvation or the Holy Spirit, we got a bit of a theological paradox, uh, a problem. Because at the end of this parable, these five foolish women go out and get oil. They're able to buy it even though it's midnight, which... uh, I didn't know they had 24-hour Walmarts back then, but they, they found a stall somewhere, and they got the oil. And if that was the case, then they, they did it. They have the good deeds that's supposed to get them in, according to some people. That's, that's bad theology, but that's what some people try to say. They say, well, if, if they got the oil, they, they did the good deeds. They got the Holy Spirit. They got salvation. Why are they turned away at the door then? The, the oil cannot be salvation it cannot be the holy spirit it cannot be good deeds the only thing the oil is being used for guys is a visible distinction between the ones who were genuine believers prepared for the coming of christ and the ones who were not prepared at all the ones who merely acted like believers who externally they looked like believers but they were not prepared for the day when they will meet christ in judgment now, I want you to notice two things about this statement that they were foolish because they took no oil with them. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice that they're not being described as evil or wicked here. Uh, they're just they're just foolish. In Matthew 24:28, we look at the wicked or evil servant, and it makes no qualms about telling you that this man was wicked and evil. But the women here are not engaged in evil practices. They're not being wicked. They're just being Foolish. And this foolishness is a lot like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, uh, back in Matthew 7, 24. That foolish man in Matthew 7, and the foolish woman here in Matthew 25, they're both laying their foundational trust not on the firm bedrock of God, but instead on shifting sand, on things that cannot save us. The second thing I want you to notice is the fact that it specifically says they took no oil with them. These five foolish women know that the bridegroom is coming, and yet as they claim to be actually waiting for him, they take no time to prepare for coming, uh, for his arrival. And, and in a moment we'll see that they knew they needed oil. So the only reason they are clearly not taking time to go out and get that oil, or, or even more probably not taking the oil they had at home with them, is because they are under the false belief that they will be able to get oil after the bridegroom arrives. Or because they are under the belief that they will be covered by those who did bring oil with them and be allowed in anyways. Much like the person who attends church week after week, you're here Sunday morning, you're here Sunday evening over at Countryside, you're here Wednesday night. They have this belief that simply by being around other believers, it will be sufficient. They have put their faith in vain, things that cannot save them. But the women who brought oil, they're called prudent and wise because as they wait for the coming of Christ, they have taken the time to appropriately examine themselves and prepare for his coming. And this brings us to the second section of the parable, and that is an unexpected delay. In verse 5 we read, Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. And I love how in both the parable of the wicked slave and in this parable here this morning, Christ warns his disciple that there's going to be a delay, guys. Uh, that his return, from our perspective, is going to take longer than we thought it would. From the master on a journey's perspective with the wicked servant, he wasn't delayed. He was doing exactly the things he knew that he was going to do on the journey, and he came back at exactly the right time according to his plans. In the case of the bridegroom, when he went, he was enjoying the wedding feast. He wasn't being delayed. This was his feast. And he came and left the bride's house at exactly the time that he had intended to go to his own home. They both acted in accordance with their intentional plans. And this is exactly how it will be with Christ's return. From our perspective, it can absolutely seem like God is being delayed somehow. I mean, there's are days where I look at the world, and I go, really, God? This isn't bad enough yet? Like, you're not ready to go, wow, uh, let's, let's get this party started. Like, there, It is time to pour out my wrath on mankind. We're, meet, we're meeting that maximum level of, of rebellion. And it's, it's time to stop this. But 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is not being slow in keeping his promises, as some of us count slowness. But he's being patient towards you, the unbeliever, so that you would not perish in your sins, but instead would come to repentance. God is moving in perfect accordance with his will and will absolutely keep his promises. So we see the bridegroom, from the bridesmaid's perspective, was delayed, and the ten women fall asleep. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this parable and I see that they fall asleep, I immediately jumped to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Peter, James, and John. Jesus is visibly distraught, and he says, I want the three of you to stay right here and keep watch. I'm going to go over here and pray. And he comes back, and what did he find the disciples are doing? Did they keep watch? Now, what what did they do? They went to sleep. Now, first, I don't know anyone who would ever, in the middle of something important, go to sleep. I certainly want to do it three times for each of my child's births. That would be ridiculous. But for some reason, the disciples do that. And when Jesus finds them asleep, he says, what are you guys doing? Wake up. Pray that you will be able to stay on the alert. And he goes off and comes back again, and he finds him still asleep. And I, I just imagine how crushing that must have been to him, that I am in the middle of the biggest trial of my life, and you guys can't stay awake for an hour. But notice that he doesn't lash out at them; he responds to them in love. So, in my mind, when I see that these ten women also fall asleep, I jump to the conclusion that this must be it. This is where they fail to be on the alert. But notice the fact that no in this parable that them falling asleep is ever rebuked. That's not the focus of the parable. It has, it, it is a natural response that these women have because he was delayed or because the bridegroom was delayed. The true conflict in the parable is that they are rebuked for not having brought the oil they knew they would need before they ever came to wait for the bridegroom. Now I want you to look at the interaction between the foolish and the wise women in verses 8 and 9. This is Matthew 25, verses 8 and 9. Both groups, they wake up, because they hear, prepare, the bridegroom is coming. They get their lamps, lamps ready, but the foolish women, having no oil, turn to the wise women and say in verse 8, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. No, they're not even asking please. This is They're commanding them, give us your oil, because our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no. There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. So we see that the issue isn't that they're falling asleep. The issue is they had no oil for their lamps. And it's not because they fell asleep, that they weren't able to buy oil. Like, let's make sure we have the order of operations down here correctly. Long before they fell asleep, long before they ever came, they knew they needed oil, and yet they chose to come and not bring any oil at all. And this is an important detail, despite knowing probably well in advance, Like they they probably knew weeks ahead of time that they'd need oil. And instead of going out and being prepared, they did nothing. So the fact that groom was delayed didn't cause the foolish women to fall into the sin. In the parable of the wicked slave, it's not the delay in the master's return that caused this wicked servant to start abusing his fellow servants. The slave was wicked from the start. And as the master's journey was delayed and it stretched on, the wicked servant acted out on the wicked desires of his wicked heart in his master's absence. Likewise, these five women, they were foolish long before the wedding day, right? Like, it's not that they became foolish simply because the groom was delayed in coming. And this is an important difference because if we say that the wicked servant was only wicked because in his master's absence he chose sin, or if we say that these women were only foolish because in the delay of the bridegroom they acted foolishly, then who are we making the cause of their sin? We're making God the cause of their sin. We're saying, if God had not delayed, I wouldn't have been acting wickedly. If God had not delayed, I wouldn't be acting foolishly. God is never the reason or cause for our sins. Each of us intentionally choose sin regardless of whether or not God comes before I finish my sentence or if he comes 2,000 years beyond now. Well, these foolish women are now confronted with the folly of their choices, of the reality of the time that they squandered away rather than appropriately preparing for the bridegroom's coming, and they asked their friends for some oil to go and buy some for themselves, or or only to be told to go and buy some for themselves. That that seems kind of petty, right? Like, no, no, I'm not going to share with you. I can't spare an ounce of oil. You'd think that everyone there would be able to, you know, share and share alike, as the saying goes. And that if they share, they're all in a group together, they'd be able to all come to the bridegroom's house and enter in the festivities together, right? That, that's kind of how we, we like to think about things. Well, there's a reason Jesus chose this example of the wedding processional. And you see, there's, there's one detail I, I haven't actually told you yet about the customs of the time. And that detail is that everyone who was an officially invited guest was usually given like a a piece of clay that had an invitation on it. It was their invitation, this, this clay tablet. And as further proof, every guest had to have a lit lamp. You see, anyone who did not have these two items was considered to be a wedding crasher or a brigand trying to gain false entry. And that, that makes sense when we start to think about it. Think about it, at the time, you're standing there on the street corner, you're a ne'er-do-well, and you see this wedding processional going by you. Uh, you, know, you know what? There is good food to be had at this. There's good drink to be had at this. I'm gonna sneak in, because here goes everyone walking by, I'm just gonna kinda slip into the back of the crowd here, and I'm gonna join this processional. And so they came up, because people in the past weren't stupid, <laughs> They came up with a way of saying, you know what? Here's a real easy way to prove if they were invited. First, they've got to have the tablet. Second, they've got to have a lamp. Because you might find a tablet on the ground, but you're not going to be carrying a, this this torch. We call it a lamp, but you know it was probably a torch, and they'd they dip it in their flask of oil to keep it going throughout the time. But you're not going to carry that around with you all the time. So if you had these two things, it was proof positive that you were a guest. And it's not that you could run home and grab a lamp either. There was a rule that once the last person in that procession came in, the servant was to close the gate. And from that point on, it didn't matter what you brought to the gate. You were not allowed in. Far from being petty, the wise women continue to demonstrate the fact they are in fact wise women. They understood the standards for entering into the wedding feast and have made certain that they are fully equipped to be a part of the procession and be permitted to join in the feast of the bridegroom. Their response to the foolish woman is to go and buy some wine, the very thing they should have done long before coming and waiting for the bridegroom. Now, show of hands here, do you think that the point of the parable is Jesus is saying you can buy your salvation? Now, Sage called me out last time, so I'm not going to lie and say everyone has their hands up. No one has their hands up. <laughs> no, of course not. You can't buy your salvation. Uh, we know that salvation was a gift given by God according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one, or not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If our salvation is the gift of God, can it it cannot be something you can purchase. It cannot be something you can earn. If if salvation was something that I could purchase, or, or more specifically that I could earn, what would we call that? What's something that I earn? Like, say you have a job. You work at Chick-fil-A. And every two weeks, because I assume that's you get paid bi-weekly, but every two weeks, your boss comes and says, okay, you worked 20 hours the past two weeks. What does he give you at that point? What, what, what do you get after... For, for working a certain number of hours? Paycheck. You get a paycheck. Exactly. If I work for something, what I am given is not called a gift. It is called my wages. It is what I deserve and earn. If you need a more direct example, in Acts 8, we see a man named Simon who used to be a sorcerer. He tries to purchase from Peter the ability to give the Holy Spirit to other people. And then Peter tells him in Acts 8 verse 20, uh, May your silver perish with you because you supposed you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter if your heart is not right before God. Salvation, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, all these things cannot be purchased. They are priceless treasures that can only be received as a gift from the one who has them which is god so no jesus is not trying to say in this parable that you can go out and buy salvation instead the point of this exchange is that the wise women are telling the foolish women that they should have gone out and done the legal proper thing from the very beginning that they need to go through the proper channels to be prepared for the coming bridegroom. And this is the point of the parable. Jesus is telling the disciples, no, seriously, you, the person who claims to be a follower of me, you need to be on the alert for my coming. Because we can look at the parable Alejandro taught last week, right? And we can go, you know what? That's not me. The wicked servant, (laughs) the guy who who was beating his fellow slaves, keeping food away from people, that's not who I am. Uh, I, I come here every Sunday. I tithe not 10%, I tithe 11% just to be really spiritual. Uh, I, I show up early on Sunday morning, and I help set up. I stay late after the second service to help clean up. I mean, my parents are Christians. My parents' parents were Christians. Clearly, I'm okay here. But what's the issue with this line of reasoning? You can tell me what the issue here. Yes. yes. Just because someone's a Christian doesn't mean you are. That's right. Just because other people are Christians doesn't mean that you are. You know, salvation isn't secondhand smoke. You can't catch secondhand salvation. What else? They're basing it off of works and lineage. They're basing it off works and lineage. Yeah. The the issue here is that all these things they're great things. Uh, as a Christian, if you are in Christ, I fully encourage you to do all these th- these things. I encourage you to be here every Sunday fellowshipping with other believers. I encourage you to consider about tithing to God. You know, the, the New Testament it doesn't give a firm number, but it is supposed to be our joy that we support our elders who their full-time job is to be here as part of the church. Our joy to support our pastor, the fact that Dusty can commit his whole life to studying the Bible and teaching us week in and week out, even when he's exhausted. The fact that he can, he can come and he can counsel those who are in, in moments of crisis. This is our joy to support him. And it's our joy to support others through, through our giving. Our church, uh, as we continue to grow, the fact that we can minister to others through things like missionary support or using uh, maybe someday our, our own building for different ministries. This is our joy. Uh, but these things are not things that save us. And remember also that at this time there was a belief as this young lady said that uh, we could like get secondhand salvation. And there was a belief among the Hebrews that simply by being Jewish people descendants of Abraham they would come into God's promised kingdom. And it's an issue that we see actually addressed in Hebrews. Hebrews 3:15 through 19. Uh, the author of Hebrews is encouraging the Jewish readers to not have an evil unbelieving heart but instead says today if you hear his voice Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him, talking about God, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who come out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Understand, it doesn't matter what your lineage is. Each one of us is responsible for our response for the gospel. And each one of us, if we have a hard-hearted unbelief, will not enter God's rest. These foolish women had faith that they would enter the wedding feast, but despite knowing that they would not be allowed in without a lit lamp, they made zero effort to prepare for the coming of the bridegroom. Which leads us to our final section And that is the disastrous consequence. Reading from verse 10, we see, And while they were going away to make the purchase, that's for the oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The five foolish women go out and purchase the oil for their lamps. But while they're doing so, they miss it. And coming to the door, despite now having a lit lamp, despite now having that invitation that they probably would have had according to the custom of the time, they are told to depart. That they have no portion of this wedding feast. And I don't think it's any accident that Jesus echoes his earlier teachings from Matthew 21, or excuse me, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who fail to be on the alert, making sure that they are in Christ, will find that despite all the outward actions they do, all the, the religiosity, the mask that they wear, the outward appearances, it won't matter. They will be told to depart from the presence of a holy and righteous God because they were never his. So what is our application for today? Was found in verse 13? Be on the alert. Next week, Jesus is going to address the person who hears his message and has yet to respond to it. And last week, Jesus addressed the person who is defiantly in opposition against him. But this week, Jesus is talking to you here right now, you who claim to be a follower of his and telling you that you need to be on the alert concerning the validity of your faith. Are you like the foolish women who, despite knowing the exact thing they needed to come into the bridegroom's uh, bridegroom's feast, have you not done it yet? Are you not prepared For the coming of the bridegroom if your insurance of salvation is based on empty acts of religion or uh, or anything like that you need to repent you need to throw yourself before god confessing that you are a sinner and he is perfect in all of his ways That he and he alone is the only means of salvation. There is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. We can have salvation in nothing else, guys. And you need to examine yourself and figure out, is that me? Have I prepared myself for the coming of the blessed Messiah? Because if you haven't, if your confidence is in the things you do, in the family you have, in the friends you make, then your faith is worthless. You are like the foolish woman, or you are like the foolish man who built his house on sand. And I pray that you here this morning that you'll come and talk to us. Talk to any of the leaders. We're about to do something fun. We're about to do these these recordings. You're more important, guys. We will absolutely come and talk to you instead of doing a, a silly skit. Go talk to your parents. Talk to Pastor Dusty. You are cherished by us. Come and see us, please. Be prepared for the coming of the King. Be on the alert. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of studying your word. I pray that every last one of us here would be like the prudent women, that we would take the time to closely examine our spiritual walk through time in your word and prayer, making sure that we are on the alert, having placed our confidence in you and you alone for our salvation. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.